All right, so 2 Corinthians, I've I've said this before, I'll continue to kind of talk about this, but it's a little bit of a challenging book or letter in the New Testament. It's It's written as a personal letter between Paul and this church in Corinth. And there is just so much like behind the scenes that, they're, that they know about, that Paul knows about, that we don't know about, that makes it a little bit like, wow, we're kind of walking into a room and there's a married couple fighting and we don't really know why and we, don't, we kind of want to back away. It sort of feels that way a little bit when we read 2 Corinthians because we don't have all the context, but we, we, we're starting now to pick up some of this context. Paul's going to start addressing some things pretty deliberately now in the next couple of chapters, 10 and 11 in particular, he really starts to hone in. Um, And so I've said from the beginning that the the purpose of this letter, uh, when you look at it in its entirety, is that Paul's trying to get this church to stay with Jesus. That there was a group of people evidently, and he's going to address them here, um, but there was this group of people that had kind of wormed their way into the, into the church, had started to kind of make some uh, divisions there, and were really undermining the Apostle Paul. But here's the problem. It's not just the Apostle Paul that they're undermining. They're undermining Jesus. Because the Apostle Paul was given the authority of Jesus Christ in this church. That's why we read the scripture, though it was written by prophets and apostles, those men and, and those people were given the authority of Jesus Christ in that season and in that moment to speak for him. And he inspired every word that poured out of their, their pen as they wrote these words. And so when, when they go after Paul, they are going after Paul, but they're ultimately going after Jesus. And so uh, they're trying to convince the church to leave Christ and, uh, and to abandon the true gospel for a false gospel, much like what happened in the church in Galatia. We walked through Galatians a couple years ago or maybe a year ago. I don't, it's all a blur now. But at some point we went through Galatians and that was the whole thing. The whole point of Galatians is Paul is trying to get them back to the true gospel of Christ, not this artificial man-based, human-based, works-based salvation. And so uh, that's where it's kind of becoming an issue here. Corinth is starting to move in that direction as well. And that's going to become really obvious in chapter 11. He's going to hit it just directly. uh, But chapter 10 starts to gear up for that. And so here we're going to see a little bit of him addressing the elephant in the room um, and, and responding particularly to the slander uh, that, that this group of people, this small group of people in the church were, were um, engaging in towards him. So, so they're slandering Paul. They're trying to undermine Paul um, and ultimately Jesus in the process because Paul is Jesus's his guy. He's, he's the apostle, right? And so, so they're trying to get them ultimately to leave Christ for some false, um, false religion or some false like works-based thing. Um, now, we can read this and go, okay, this, like most of 2 Corinthians, it's, it's like, does this really have anything to do with us? It just seems like so personal between Paul and Corinth. Are we just reading some history lesson that, oh, Paul had a problem with Corinth and they had a problem with him and, and that's all this is? Or, or is there something deeper going on? 
And of course, the answer is there's something deeper going on. This is pointing us, this is preserved in the scriptures for our, for our growth and for our encouragement and for our uh, maturity, right? So there is something here for us. And I think what we can glean from this is that while this is very clearly an issue of Paul and these, and these people in the church, um, the, the, the broader implication is we can, we can see how Paul walks through personal attacks and we can grow in Christ as we're attacked personally. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt attacked by someone verbally or, uh, or just in their, their behavior or actions towards you, but I'm sure you have. I would be shocked if you've never felt personally attacked by someone. Uh, I'm sure at some point in your life, someone has gone after your character or has gone after your convictions or has gone after your reputation. Um, it has definitely happened to me in my life. I'm sure it's happened to you in your life. And, um, you know, on one level or another, we've all experienced conflict with someone. Uh, and so whether that's a, a neighbor that's bitter at us or a coworker that doesn't like us or maybe even a friend or a so-called friend, maybe it was somebody in your own church or even someone that you are or were married to, um, and the truth is it hurts the most. These personal attacks hurt the most when they come from someone who's supposed to love you. Um, I've found that it hurts the most when it's from a fellow Christian. Um, and, and that's very often the case, uh, at least in my experience. It's been mostly Christians uh, that have come after me. And, and that's really sad, right? But that's the world we live in. And that's where, where Paul's at. Paul's being personally attacked and he is going to address those attacks, and he's going to do a little bit of defending of himself. However, really what he's going to do is he's going to show us how we can respond in the, in the same Christ-like way as we deal with personal uh, conflicts within our lives. Um, and so here's the, here's the big idea, uh, or the, one of the main ideas I want to just hone in on. Um, this is not going to help you avoid all personal attacks against you. You can't control that. You can't control what someone else does or how someone else responds. And I think for a lot of us, at least for me, I'll speak just for myself. I can't speak for everyone, but, but I tend to internalize personal attacks. Right? And, and that's because partly I'm a people pleaser. I think most of us are to some degree or another. We want to be liked. We want to be respected or whatever. And we feel personally attacked when, when, a, when somebody comes after us. And it's like, it's easy to internalize that. We've got to be careful not to do that. It's not, it's not us, okay? But at the same time, uh, we can't control what someone else does. We can't stop what someone else does. What we can do is we can redirect our hearts in those moments. And of course, this is easier said than done, but it's, it's a practice that we need to continue to do. And sometimes you need someone to snap you out of yourself. And uh, that's what I've found, at least in my life. I'll just tell you, a couple weeks ago, I was um, verbally accosted by somebody and um, they were mad at me for one thing or another. And I got really defensive internally uh, because I, uh, you know, I'm a pastor and I don't really want them to like smear the church reputation. I didn't really say a whole lot in that moment. I tried to keep my, my tongue, but I, I was hurt by it. 
And uh, so I called a friend of mine after that, who's a pastor in another state, and just like complained, you know, to him. And uh, everybody needs a sounding board. Everybody needs people that they can complain to. And uh, he just really helped me in that moment to, to realize like I'm internalizing and owning something that's not, it's not for me to do. So I, I need it. You need this. We all do at some point or another, maybe not right this second, but at some point you're going to need the reminders of the gospel as we walk through confrontation. And so what Paul's going to give us here, and again, he's not doing this in like a, in a one, two, three kind of pointed way, but he's going to give us, we're going to see six different things or principles uh, of the gospel that point us back to Jesus, that help us get our hearts back to Jesus in the midst of accusations or criticisms or disagreements or, um, yeah, or whatever, just conflict of any kind. So, there's, so this is really cool because we get to see Paul kind of in real time addressing the problems in his church in Corinth, and yet uh, the principles he brings out are going to be applicable to all of us. So, all right, let's go. We're going to look at six things. We'll try to do that quickly here. Um, it's a bit to take on, but we'll, we'll do our best. All right. Number one, verse one, says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. All right, so Paul starts this exactly with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love this. He starts it with, I'm entreating you. I'm, I'm speaking to you. Now he's speaking not to the criticisms or to the people that are against him. He's speaking to the people who are kind of in the middle, who are caught in between and are being persuaded or potentially will be persuaded. And what he's saying is to them, he's asking them through the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So I'm entreating you by the gentleness and meekness of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul's drawing us back immediately in the face of his criticism to who God is for us in Jesus, which is this gentle and lowly, gentle and humble Savior. Paul, Paul starts there because he, he has to start there. Otherwise, he's going to let his pride just get, get out of control. So he has to reroute himself back to the humility of Jesus Christ is as he's entreating these people, as he's speaking to them and trying to help them uh, stay on this team. He's going, this is not about his pride. This is about the humility of Christ and he's going to live out of that. And so what he's saying here, it goes back to what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Right? It's a familiar passage to some of you, but Matthew 11, Jesus talks about his heart. Um, and he says this in 28 through 30, Jesus is speaking here. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then here's the key, 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
Jesus is telling us that that's who he is. His heart, the center, the epicenter of his life is gentle and lowly. Lowly could be defined uh, or translated as humble. He's gentle and humble towards us in his heart. And he's calling on us to learn from him in, in those things. And so Paul is just embracing who Jesus is here. He's not losing his cool. He's not freaking out. He, he's not going to be bashing them over the head. He's, he's going to embrace the gentleness of Jesus Christ in him, at work in him by the Spirit's power. We see Jesus' gentleness actually conveyed to us as he went to the cross. And Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, um, gives us kind of a summary of how Jesus went to the cross. It says, when he was reviled, when he was reviled, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. That's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus went to the cross in his suffering. He didn't revile his enemies in return. He didn't threaten them. He, he took this upon himself in humility. And so G- Jesus is the, the real picture here that we're supposed to be seeing. As Paul embraces the criticisms, he's, he's drawing his heart back to the very heart and nature of Christ as our gentle Savior. And that's where it has to start, you guys. That's the first principle for us, is that as we deal with personal conflict, we've got to deal with it in a gentle and humble way, knowing that some of that criticism is actually maybe true, and and we can find areas where we need to change, right? God can use really terrible you know, people to, to speak into us and to show us where we need to grow. We, we can come at it with some humility, but we also need to come at it with gentleness because coming at it with this, this fury is not going to actually yield anything that God wants to accomplish. It's, it's the gentleness and the humility of Christ that we, that we will be able to embrace and actually see people change in the midst of that. So, and we ultimately will see ourselves change in that. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 2 through 6. He says, I beg of you. Um, oh, sorry. Let's, let's take one second here just to talk about the end of verse 1. Because he says, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I want to address that because that's going to be an issue here that he's going to talk about. Here's, he's addressing the first criticism of, of his opponents. His, his opponents are saying to him, man, Paul, he'll say all kinds of things in his letters, but when he's with us, he's a wimp. That's, his, that's their position. And they're basically saying that to, to go, you can't trust Paul because he's a wimp. Like, look, look at how weak he is when he's here. Look at how pathetic he is when he's here. He doesn't tell us like it is to our face, but he'll write these really nasty letters. That's what they're accusing us of, accusing him of rather. And, and so he kind of, draws that out and, and kind of jokingly or sarcastically addresses it here in verse 1. He says, So I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. He's just kind of ridiculing in some way the, the accusation. And he'll address that further as we go. But look at verse 2 now. He says, I beg of you that when I'm present, 
I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. All right, so, so here's where Paul's going. He, he addresses the, the first accusation, which is that he's a, he's a wimp when he's in person. He's a tough guy when he's away. And, and then it, what he says essentially is, look, um, I don't have to be, and I sure hope I don't have to be, this bold, tough, rude, in-your-face person when I'm in your presence because I don't have to trust in my power to get you to change. So, so in other words, if we summarize all that, what he's saying is, is that he's committed to the power of Jesus Christ at work in people's lives, even his enemies' lives, not, into, not in his own power. He, he's, he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm, he would never say that he's timid in their presence, but he is gentle in their presence because he, he doesn't feel he has to be this heavy-handed, in-their-face kind of person. Unless, unless he has to be, right? And he says he will be towards those who are saying these things. That's what he says in verse 2 and 3. Um, but, but what they're dealing with here, what they're accusing him of, the second accusation is at the end of verse 2, that some suspect us, Paul, Timothy, Titus, all those, all those guys that are working with Corinth, they suspect us of walking according to the flesh, so in other words, their accusation is, is that Paul is probably not even a Christian. He's just living out his own sinful desires. He's not, he's not actually here for you. He's here for himself. Right? He, they're, they're accusing him of walking according to his sinful nature as he deals with them. And, and so Paul is going to defend this very strongly because he's not doing that at all. He's walking in the spirit as he's working with the Corinthians. Paul was not a perfect man. He was not sinless in any way. He's the first person who will say that. He, He admits that he's the chief of sinners, right? So Paul's not in any way denying his sinfulness. He is, however, going to defend the the accusation that he is waging some kind of battle with them in the power of his own strength. So what his opponents are accusing him of, of is being unspiritual. And, and Paul's just going to prove that wrong as he gets there face to face. That's what he's telling them. The truth is, though, that Paul is not depending on himself at all. He's depending on Christ. That's what he says in verse 4. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. It says what, we, what we're using in our lives to help, uh, help you grow in Christ is not our own strength. It's not our power. It's God's power. And he says that God's power destroys strongholds. What does that mean? Well, that means that there, there are things, there are sins that cling really closely to our lives. And each of us have those sins 
there, there's a variety of them, right? Every person's got their own issues. But Paul's saying that those strongholds that are in our lives, that sin just keeps clinging on, those can be broken by the power of God. You can see God do his work in you in those things. The divine power to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. The power of God is the power to persuade even the most skeptical, cynical person from their lofty opinions to see the truth of the knowledge of God. That's why people who are being saved have a change of mind and heart uh, because God's power is at work in them to change their hearts and their minds and their thinking. He, he says the power of God allows us to take every thought captive to obey Christ. The power of God is what fuels obedience in the Christian life. It's not our power that allows us to obey Jesus. It's Christ's power at work in us. And so here you see Paul really defending this notion that he's walking according to the flesh. He says, absolutely not. We are walking in the power of God and we're seeing God do his thing. In other words, he's, he's not def- depending on himself at all. John Calvin, who was a reformer back five, 500 so years ago, wrote a commentary on this, this book of the Bible and in it, uh, he says this, I just think it's helpful. He says, nothing is more opposed to spiritual wisdom, the spiritual wisdom of God rather, than the wisdom of the human flesh. And nothing is more opposed to God's grace than man's natural abilities. It's the same with everything the world thinks exalted. Thus the the humility of man is the only foundation of the kingdom of God. Calvin's point is that if we're not humbled or brought low, God, we're going to be in opposition to God at all times. We have, to be, we have to be brought down to the proper level so that God can build his kingdom where, where our lives are. The, the greatest thing that opposes the grace of God is man's natural ability. In other words, if you think that you can somehow save yourself, fix yourself, heal yourself, that pride is ultimately going to show itself to be your greatest failure. But if you're humble to admit you need grace, then you'll see God's power at work. That's Calvin's point. Paul freely admits his weaknesses, does it all over the place in virtually every letter he writes. In fact, chapter 12 of this letter, he's going to really go hard on his own weaknesses but he also defends the power of the gospel because it's the power of the gospel that works in the midst of our weaknesses. In fact, our weakness is the way to God's strength. That's what we need to do too. So the first thing Paul hones in on as he's dealing with these difficult people is the gentleness of Christ. The second thing he hones in on is the power of Jesus Christ. And the third thing here is found in verse 7 through 11. Let's read those. He says, look at what's before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he's in Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if we boast, or if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. 
I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, so here's another accusation, kind of goes along with the one in verse one. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. So he's quoting those people that are saying this. It says, let such a person understand that what we say by letter, we, uh, when absent, we also do when present. Okay. Um, so here's, here's the main idea. Paul is honing in on his commitment to consistency. He's honing in on this commitment to be consistent in, in who he is. That the person he is when he's away from them is the same guy he is when he's with them. The accusation is, is no, no, no. He's way tougher in his letters than he is in person. And Paul's answer to that is, well, no. The same things I'm saying to you here in these letters, I say to your face. He's consistent with them. Um, but um, they're, they're actually calling him out as this basically mean guy over the letters, weak when he's with them, and then they add on to it, and his speech is of no account, which means he's a, he's a cruddy preacher. That's what they're accusing him of. So you got to understand a little bit of the context here. The Greek world was all about wisdom and being impressive as a speaker. Like, that's what the Greeks were all about. They were impressed with you if you could talk well and if you could uh, kind of give something that was sort of interesting or, or different or things that they'd never heard. And so the, the people that are criticizing Paul are really embracing the cultural notions of the day. And what they're saying is, is that Paul's a bad preacher. He's not very impressive when he's here. And he's really only a tough guy when he's away. Those are the accusations. And Paul's going... that. Okay, he, he doesn't even defend his, his preaching ability. I think Paul knew he wasn't a good preacher. Um, he, he really, I don't think he was. Paul never defends that. He never says, well, actually, I'm a great preacher. No, I think Paul's like, he, he obviously knew the Lord Jesus. He loved the Lord Jesus. He, he communicated well in the things that he needed to say, but he wasn't this impressive guy. And, and he, I don't think he had any problem with saying that. Um, in fact, in the book of Acts, we know that he preached a sermon, put a kid to sleep, fell off a roof, died. Paul goes down and resurrects him from the dead and then keeps preaching all night. That's, that's Paul. Right? He's, not, he's not the most engaging preacher, but the, bringing a kid back to life was pretty exciting. That was probably the best part of the night. But that, that's Paul, right? So, so anyways, he's not, in, he's not trying to defend himself against these things. He is trying to defend the idea that he's not consistent. Why is he so concerned about that? Well, it's because it really comes down to who Jesus is, right? That Jesus was the most consistent person who ever lived. What you saw with Jesus is what you got. It, you, there, was no, there were no two sides to Christ. You had who he was. He, he, was he, he was tough with the people he needed to be tough with. He was gentle with the people that needed to be treated gently. But he was who he was. He knew exactly how to deal with with people in their moment. And that's Paul saying, I'm trying to be consistent as well because Jesus is consistent. So what about us though? Do, are, we, are we committed to consistency in our lives? Or are we way bolder behind a computer screen on social media than we would ever be face to face? 
This is the problem with the world we live in right now, is that people can hide. They, they can say horribly nasty things under anonymity, basically, being anonymous, and they don't have to say anything to someone's face. We need to really be committed against those things. We, we need to be faithful in every interaction we have, whether it's online or in person. We need to be the same people. And I'm not saying you've got to be a jerk at all. Like, that's not the point. In fact, the opposite. You, you need to be gentle in all the ways that you engage with people. The problem is that most of us are kind of cowardly when it comes to confrontation. We don't like awkward conversations. We don't want to have to be direct with people. It's a whole lot easier to just blast off some message on on Facebook towards somebody and just just crush them on the screen or text them something like, you know, that you got to understand how cowardly that is. And we've got to fight against this um, because it, it doesn't, doesn't point people to Jesus in, in who he is. If you've got something hard to say to someone, then you know, there's got to be a, a better way than just sending a text message or shooting something on social media. You, you've got to deal with it. You've got to see their, their eyes. You've got to look in their face. They've got to look into yours because it's a whole lot harder to be an absolute just destructive force of nature when you're actually in a room with someone. And, you, and somebody that you supposedly love. And if you don't know them, then just don't even engage with them. Like that, should be, that shouldn't be rocket science, guys. <laughs> like you don't have to get involved in everything, which is actually what we're going to talk about pretty soon here. But all right. So that's a little bit of pastoral wisdom and advice for you. There you go. Let's keep going. Verse 12. We're going to keep, we're going to go kind of rapid fire here in the next few Um, Verse 12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are uh, commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So Paul's fourth point in this, the fourth gospel uh, implication to conflict is don't compare yourself to other people. Paul says, here that we are not classifying or comparing ourselves with these people who are commending themselves. They're commending themselves. They're they're trying to raise their profile. And Paul says they're not they're he's not about that. Him and Titus and Timothy and the rest they're not about that. But these people amongst themselves are all about that. They compare themselves to each other. They're measuring themselves up to one another. And he says they're without understanding. See, we're all naturals at the comparison game. We, we, all, we all struggle with this. We all look at other people and we wonder why they have this and I don't have this or they look like this and I don't look like that or this and that and the other thing, right? We, we always compare. Now again, um, we live in a, in a media world where that becomes so much easier to do than it ever was. But it's always been a problem. I'd ever heard the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. 
Like that was like from a long time ago, like 1940s, 50s, that phrase kind of became a thing because the, the same inclination of the human heart is always the same. 2,000 years ago when Paul's talking to his Corinthians, it's the same. It's the problem. It's a human problem. It's, it's a bigger problem today because everything is in front of us so much more readily. But it's always been a problem. And, and here's, so here's ultimately what the issue is with comparison. It's going to only lead to one of two places. It's either going to lead you to pride, <clears throat> which is sin, because you're going to look at somebody and go, I'm better than they are. Like, my dog does cooler tricks than theirs does or whatever other stupid thing you want to compare yourself to, right? Like, <clears throat> that's, that's pride. Or it's going to lead you to despair because you just don't feel you could ever measure up to them. He, here's why... Paul says these people are without understanding. It's because they don't understand the gospel. Comparison, when it's put into the light of Christ through the gospel, um, does not allow us to compare ourselves to anyone else because God is already fully pleased with you because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why you don't need to compare yourself to anyone else because you have one member in the audience that you need to care about one and he loves you unconditionally he died for every sin you've ever committed he came to earth and lived a perfect life on your behalf he applied the righteousness of himself perfect righteousness to you there is nothing that you can do to impress him more there is nothing that you can do to make him happier with you. He loves you where you are. Now he wants to change you and he wants to change me, of course. We're not where we should be. But he loves us where we are and he's applied his righteousness to us. That's why we don't compare. Because all we have to do is look at Jesus and go, what does he say? What does he think of me? Larry Osborne, who's a pastor in Southern California, he says that if we really believe the gospel... We have no one to impress and we have nothing to prove. If we really believe that we are in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we have no one to impress and we have nothing to prove because all of that affirmation and love has been given to us in Christ. And so they're without understanding because they don't understand the gospel. And so what they're trying to do is to boost themselves up, build themselves up where and find some satisfaction in their hearts, which should only be really coming from Jesus Christ. This is a convicting one, isn't it? I'm sorry about that. Not really. I'm just kidding about being sorry. But <laughs> you're, it's a quiet room, so I'm like, ooh, hitting, hitting some nerves. I'm sorry about that. No. All right, let's go. Keep going here. Verse 13 uh, through 17. All right. I like this one too. Paul says, but we, we will not boast beyond limits, but we will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to each, uh, to us rather, to reach even to you. For we're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limits, a limit to the labor of others, but our hope 
is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may also greatly be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another areas, another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. All right, so this is an interesting kind of turn that Paul makes. Um, he, he's, he's talking here about not boasting or bragging um, because all he's doing is doing what God has called him to do. He, he's saying here, look at verse 13 again. He says, we will not boast beyond limits, but we will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. So, so Paul's whole point here is, I'm not here to brag and boast about all of these things. All I'm here to do is focus on what God has given me to do. And in Paul's case, that was to go through the world and preach the gospel. But he, here's the point for us. The point for us is that as Paul was, was meant to focus on his task, so you and I are called to focus on the task God has given to us. And let me, let me just be clear about this. The task that God has given to you is to help people love Jesus right where you are. So if that means to help people love Jesus through your influence as a neighbor, a friend, uh, an employee, a coworker, whether that means going into the, the area of influence that you have been given, your call is to make Jesus known in that place at that time. And again, I think we have to, we have to kind of press against our cultural issues, which is one of the cultural issues we face is that we have so much information about so many things uh, all the time that it becomes so easy for us to get distracted from what we're called to do. Because we live with, uh, so let me, just, let me just say this, like 50 years ago, you knew things because you got a weekly newspaper and that might give you some of the broad strokes of what was happening in the world. But generally speaking, you spent your time, your energy, your efforts, your desires in your neighborhood, at your work, in your home with the people that God had put in front of you. That's, that's how the world was. Now you get on your phone and you see everything from every angle, from every corner, all over the place. And man, we can just lose so much sight of the fact that, that what God has called us to do is to focus on where we are. Where we are. That's what Paul's saying. He's going, I'm not worrying about what everybody else is doing out there. Like, he's not even saying that they're doing bad things. He's going, look, they're, they're extending the gospel to places that I'm not, and I'm not going to tread on what they're doing because I'm just going to focus on what God's given me to do, what my task is, what, what my role here is. And I think we need to hear this because it's so easy for us to become consumed with things that really don't affect your daily life. Like, care about what's going on in your house more than you care about what's going on in the White House. Can I preach that to you? Like, that's what matters. 
What's going on in your heart, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your schools? That's what matters, really. Because that's where God's put you. If God calls you to run for president and you get in the White House, then you can care about the White House. How about we do that? How about we start there? Like, I'm not saying that you shouldn't vote or get engaged, okay? I'm not, I'm not going there. I am saying that we can spend way too much of our energy caring about things we can't change and aren't called to change, if we're honest. Because what we're called to change are the things that are right here, right in front of us. If we start there, maybe things will trickle out from there. But let's care about what's in front of us. Focus on what God's given you to do. Again, not, no judgment on, on any of it. If whoever you voted for, whatever you believe on that, fine. But don't make it your life's ob- obsession. What matters is that you have people in your life, in your home, in your, in your neighborhood who need Jesus and need to have the ministry of Jesus Christ in their life through you. Start there. Care about that. That's what Paul would want you to do. That's what Jesus wants you to do because this is what Paul is saying. He's, he's saying, I'm, I'm not here to care about all these other things. I'm here to care about what's in front of me right now. That's what we need to be concerned with too. All right, one more. One verse, 18. For it's not the one who, uh, it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one who the Lord commends. All right, this is great. This is where we need to, these are kind of bookends, right? The, the first bookend is we've got to embrace the gentleness of Jesus in our interactions with people. And now the second bookend, this kind of closing bookend here is that, that Jesus is really the only one that matters. His opinion's the only one that matters. His thoughts about us are the only things that matter. So he, if we are all about Jesus, What he thinks of us is what we should care about. That's what he says, right? It's not the one who commends himself who is approved. Paul's going, you can give yourself every pat on the back you want, but that does not matter one bit. That doesn't change your standing in Christ at all. What changes is when the Lord commends you. And here's the gospel coming back to us, that Jesus Christ does commend us not based on the basis of our works, but on the basis of his works, on the basis of his perfect life and death and resurrection. That's where we find our commendation. That's where we find our approval. That's where it all has to come back around. If we lose sight of that, then we're going to be trying to work our way to Jesus and try to earn our place and try to somehow fix ourselves when the answer is right in front of us and the grace of God is extended to us and all we're called to do is reach out and take it and trust in Jesus. That's where Paul's going to take us. And, and so I think these six things are so important to speak into, the life, into our lives because we are inundated with lies all day, every day. Here's the truth. Jesus Christ loves you. And he accepts you as you trust in him. That faith gives the grace that he has for you. That's what you need to rest in. That's what you need to put your hope in. That's what you need to focus all your attention on. The grace of God in Christ for us. And I, I think we, we just lose sight of that every week. 
I do too. We all do. We live in a very noisy world and we need to be brought back into, into the, the heart of Christ again. The gentleness of Christ. Who, let's go back to that ver- first verse. Come to me, he says. All of you who labor and are heavy uh, burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. That's where it has to come back to. As we come to him, he gives us rest. Let's, let's go there. Let's go there. All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us this morning. Um, we know that these, these words are um, important to hear. They're also hard to hear. And so I don't, I don't know who uh, needs to hear all these things. I know I did. So Lord, I thank you that you've helped me um, this week as I've worked through this. I pray that it also falls on uh, soft hearts today. Lord, that we would just be drawn back to, to Jesus, to what really fundamentally matters, um, even in, in the midst of being in conflict with others, that we would not lose sight of who you are. We pray that you would give us the, the gentleness of Jesus even now, and we pray it in your name. Amen.